I'm just going to be really honest, and I'm not, you might think is a little weird, and I would be like, you're right for the most part, but I do have some strains of perfectionism, which I'm going to share with you guys later, that kind of go into like some deep parts of my soul that God has worked out in me. Um, so let me pray before we get started, and then we'll dive in. Um, God, thank you for tonight. Thank you that this is our last teaching night for the series. Um, thank you that you brought us a long way. Um, just in who you are and who we are in you. And God, I pray for tonight that your words would come out of my mouth and that um, you would meet with us here and just teach us what you want us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm an artist, guys, and one of my favorite artists ever is John Singer Sargent. Um, And he was a portrait painter back in the 18 and 1900s, early 1900s. Um, He's a really famous portrait artist and... Actually, one of my first dates with my husband, he took me to D.C. to see, oh, yeah, there it is, okay, to see um, a gallery showing in the National Portrait Gallery of his work, and it's amazing, it's beautiful. So he was really well known in his life and in his day and age, and um, he was a White House guest in the, like, 1903, and he was there to paint a portrait of the president. The um, White House had hired him to paint a portrait of Teddy Roosevelt. And so here was the problem. Teddy Roosevelt was a really strong-willed personality, and most artists are also strong-willed personalities. We have a point of view, we like to do things a certain way, all that good stuff. And so they had a problem because the president didn't want to sit for the portrait that he'd hired the artist to do. And John Singer Sargent was like, you gotta sit, and the light has to be good. So they were having trouble getting it started, so he was at the White House for several weeks before they even got going. And one day they're climbing a staircase together, And um, Teddy Roosevelt tells Sargent that he doesn't think that Sargent knows what he's doing or what he wants as an artist. And Sargent said that he didn't think that Roosevelt knew what was involved in posing for a portrait. So they're having a really, like, beautiful and loving discussion, right? And um, so Roosevelt had just reached, like, the landing in the White House. And um, as they're having this argument, he turned around and looked at Sargent. And Sargent was like, don't move. This is it. Um, And so he started to paint him for 30 minutes. And will you throw it up there, Ash? This is the portrait that came out of those 30-minute sessions that he got to do that week. So he had like a week of 30-minute sessions, which if you guys know anything about portrait painting, usually people sit for hours and hours and hours, especially a portrait of the president. Now, Teddy Roosevelt thinks that this was a complete success. He loved this portrait of him, and he called it his favorite portrait ever painted of him. And so here was my thought process. I read this story this week, and I was like, man, when I think about my creative process and how I do things, I usually like to have everything just so, right? I like to have my brushes that I love to paint with. I like to have my, my paints that I want. I like to have my right canvas size. Um, I like to have my, like, stuff that I'm painting from, whether it's a still life or a picture or whatever. And great artists, well, good artists usually labor over details. They know where they're going, they know how they want to get there, and if it's not right, they'll usually labor over it and labor over it until it gets where they want to go. But great artists know when to seize a moment. And great artists are able to use whatever tools are put in front of them. A great artist will paint a great piece of art whether they have, like, Crayola brushes and paints or whether they have the most expensive oils and canvases. They can create because they're not hung up on the perfect thing on the perfect environment. Perfectionism, and as women, a lot of us in this room struggle with it, and it looks different in all of us, but perfectionism is self-destructive. 
And we're going to dig into that a little bit tonight. So on your notes, there is um, a quote by Brene Brown. Can I have one of your notes, guys? Thanks. And we're going to read it. I like the way she defined this. And if you guys know anything about Brene Brown, she is a researcher who researches human um, emotion and the way that we interact with each other. And a lot of her research is really good, so I love her. She says, Perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect, live perfectly, and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. Perfectionism is addictive. I want you guys to underline addictive. Perfectionism is addictive because when we invariably do experience shame, judgment, and blame, we often believe it's because we weren't perfect enough. So rather than questioning the faulty logic of perfectionism, we become even more entrenched in our quest to live, look, and do everything just right. Perfectionism is not self-improvement. It is at its core about trying to earn approval. I want you guys to underline earn approval. Most perfectionists grew up being praised for achievement and performance, grades, manners, rule-following, people-pleasing, appearance, and sports. Somewhere along the way, they adopted this dangerous and debilitating belief system. I am what I accomplish and how well I accomplish it. Please perform perfect. Does that hit home for any of you guys? It hit home for me because I am the performer in that please perform perfect scenario. I'm the performer for a lot of reasons. Um, I'm the performer because I'm the oldest in the family, and that tends to make you the caretaker in the family. I'm a performer because I'm the oldest in the missionary family, and so we were often on parade in front of churches trying to raise support and all that good stuff. And I'm a performer because that's just kind of my natural bent. I like to do things. I like to do things well. And so my identity has gotten wrapped up at an early age in how well I'm doing something. So the problem is that this perfectionism often correlates with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and other mental health problems, this pursuit of perfection. But why? Why does it lead to depression and anxiety? Because if, from a logical point of view, if you're achieving your goals, shouldn't that bring you peace and satisfaction? Right? The problem is, and this is your first fill-in-the-blank, Perfectionism is an unattainable standard. I'm a big believer in saying the real thing and calling something what it is. And I'm a big believer in setting expectations well. And perfectionism is a false expectation. It sets an unattainable standard for all of us to reach. And then when we invariably fail to reach it at some point or another we feel like the failures we've been set up to believe we are. Last week, I was in Knoxville with several leaders in the room, and we were at a Priscilla Shire conference. And um, I, <laughs> when this was happening, I was like, oh, this is a perfect illustration for this week <laughs> coming up. I was like, thank you, Lord, but this is terrible, but thank you. Um, so I, being the unorganized person that I am, was trying to be very organized with putting this whole thing together. And it went really well, except for one afternoon where I had what I thought was a great idea to take us on a 15-minute walk from a parking lot to our restaurant for dinner in the middle of downtown Knoxville. And I thought, this will be amazing. This will be so much fun. We're just going to hang out. It's going to be great. But it was like 100 degrees. 
So we were walking, and everyone was like dripping sweat and breathing hard and looking around desperately for the restaurant to appear. And I was like, this is not working out the way that I thought it was going to. And at first, you know what started to go through my head? Negative self-talk right away. I was like, oh, man, I've made my friends really uncomfortable. This is not going well. I'm not a good leader. This is a failure. And all of this negative self-talk immediately started circling through my head for like 10 minutes. But you guys, God has brought me so far in performance-driven things that I was able to like recognize it quickly and put a stop to it quickly. And that for me is huge growth in my perfectionism. So I wanted to share that with you because what happens right away when we don't handle making a mistake well, and all of us will make mistakes, is that we feel fear. And it's a heightened fear, and it's an illogical fear. Perfection sets us up for this idea of, if I make a mistake, everything is going to fall to pieces around me. That is absolutely false. It's absolutely false. Mistake-making is part of growing up. Every person in this room makes mistakes. There is no one in here with us that is unable to make a mistake. We all make mistakes. We have made them before. We're going to make them again. And mistakes lead to growth. An important part of being a healthy human being is being able to accept that you will make mistakes and then learn from those mistakes. So again, we're going to put some real qualifiers around what we live in and who we are. It's okay to not do everything well. In fact, we will not do everything well. And those are opportunities, not for defeat, but for growth. And that leads us to number two, which is shame. And that shame will say, I'm the worst because dot, dot, dot. So in the scenario I just shared with you guys, here is my fear. The rest of the conference is going to be terrible because everyone's going to be hot, tired, and mad. And no one's going to want to go on another conference. Illogical. Not real. Not based in any reality except what was rotating in my own brain. And then came the shame. I am the worst leader because I made people walk for 15 minutes in the heat. Not true. I may not be the best leader God ever created, but I'm definitely not the worst. There's a nice middle ground that I'm in somewhere. (laughs) So all of the things that perfectionism sets us up to believe about ourselves are falsehoods and lies. And we need to start calling them out in order to move through our perfectionism onto freedom. And the third thing is hopelessness. The lie of perfection will say, there is no way out of this mess. It will never change. This is the way it is or the way that I am. So if you are a perfectionist and you're really, really stuck in that trench of that wheel of I have to do, I have to do, I have to be, it can feel like when you constantly hit a place, because we all have that one place that we don't do really well in all the time, when you hit that place and you're trying really hard, that's where that hopelessness will rise up. And it will say, you can never do blank. You can never be blank. This is it for you. And that speaks to identity, and that's an accusation, and that's from our enemy, the devil. And that perfectionism thing is what he uses a lot with those of us who want to be better and want to try harder and want to do more because he knows exactly how to make us fail and feel all of those things that will lead us down into the hopelessness. Because when we're hopeless, 
then we don't even try. We just stay stuck, right? And what the enemy wants to do, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're already saved, you've already got a hope in the future, but he wants to make you ineffective. He wants to keep you stuck. Because if he can keep you stuck, then the power of God's not going to flow through you as you walk in obedience and victory. It's just going to keep you down. Proverbs 24, 16 is one of my very favorite verses. It's on your sheet. And it says, Though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. But the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. So what do the righteous do? Does it say the righteous never fall? Does it say the righteous fall one time and then they got it going on for the rest of life? It says the righteous fall seven times. They fall, and then they fall again, and they fall again, and then they fall again. But what they keep doing is getting back up. So guys, when we call things what they are, when we acknowledge that we're going to make mistakes, what is God calling us to do? He's not saying don't ever make a mistake again. But he's saying when you make a mistake, get back up. And that is the hardest thing to do because that's where that hopelessness is going to snag you by the throat sometimes, and it's going to say, don't get up. But the voice of Jesus is saying, get back up. Let's keep walking. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals their sin doesn't prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. There's a lot of freedom in calling things out into the light. And that's where that illogical fear and that illogical apprehension will come up again too. So perfectionism, when we fail and screw up and make that mistake, will say, if I tell people, if I acknowledge what I did, everyone's going to hate me, I'm going to get cast out, I'm going to whatever, fill in the blank. But that usually has a lot to do with how I'm going to be perceived. What Proverbs is saying is, is you find mercy. When you bring light to something, when you shed light on that deep, dark part of your heart that's afraid— a lot of times you find out that fear was an illusion. And all of the things that you thought were going to happen don't happen. And the enemy wants to keep you again by the throat in that hopeless place, so he uses whatever he can to do that. And then the last verse is Isaiah 41. It says, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The reason that we can get back up, guys, is that we have a hand to hold. When we fall down, there's a divine hand reaching down to give us a hand back up. He says, I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I have not rejected you. And that's where I just want to start, you guys, kind of like spinning in, or at least thinking about this idea of God is not going to reject me if I make a mistake. I am not forsaken. I am not cast out. So, a healthy mind and a healthy heart not only can receive correction for mistakes, it expects to make them because screwing up is a part of growing up, both spiritually and physically. There's no such thing as never making a mistake. That is a myth and a lie. And perfection is not achievable. It sets an unrealistic expectation that leads to unhealthy thinking when the mistakes happen. And then number two. Oh, this one hurts, guys. Perfectionism takes God's place as the judge. I think most of us, when we're in it, don't know that. We're not doing this um, 
with malice. We're not doing this with like even conscious thought. But the truth is, is that perfectionism takes God's place as judge. It's a constant wheel of judgment. When you're a perfectionist and you're thinking about that, you mostly are judging yourself, but you're definitely judging. And it's a constant striving to live up to what we think the expectations are. So we can't relax because there's always something more to do. There's always something more to be. There's always something more to live up to or achieve. And it's exhausting. And it's life-draining. It's fully opposed to the truth that our value and the value of our brothers and sisters is found in Christ. And then that perfectionism, if it's not doing enough here in us, will start to be outward focused. And we won't even know we're doing it. But soon, if people don't live up to the places we think we at least should be living up to or we're doing okay in, and they're not, we're not able to give them grace. It's that moment when we're looking around our brothers and sisters and we're like, I'm doing this okay over here, but you just made a mistake. And so that perfectionism jumps out and grabs us by the throat and grabs them by the throat as well. It's the orphan mindset. And here's where we're going to circle back around to the first talk, the first week. Do you guys remember that? Do you remember the orphan mindset? The orphan is the one that strives and competes and looks for all the things that it needs to get on its own. The orphan is afraid because it doesn't belong. And if you have to constantly work to be good enough for yourself, for God, and other people, you don't truly understand God's love for you. So as I was writing this, I was like, God, how do I make this picture like a reality? How do I like put this into clear terms? And the thing that I had come to mind was like an adoption. So let's say a little boy comes to live in my house. I've adopted him. He has a room. I've decorated it for him. We're super excited to have him. And he comes in, he has a backpack, and he puts his backpack by the bed, and he doesn't unpack it. And he comes to dinner, and we're kind of a loud and boisterous family, and we're talking and joking and having fun. He's quietly sitting, eating with perfect table manners, not joining in the conversation. And then after dinner, the family goes into the living room, and the family is playing games, and dad is wrestling on the floor with kids. And the little boy sits in the corner quietly. He's so afraid of making a mistake that he doesn't join in the conversation or the fun. And the bag stays packed for days and months because he's sure that the day soon is going to come when the family is going to kick him out. There's no security. Legally, he's been fully adopted into my family. But spiritually, emotionally, and mentally, he is completely insecure where he's at. And that is what is guiding, guarding, and directing his behavior in the family. So do you know when I'll be able to tell that he's decided to be a part of my family? Is when he spills the milk at dinner. Or when he gets in an argument with a sibling. It's when he starts to relax and be who he is and make mistakes. It's when he finds out that he can make a mistake and I'm not going to kick him out the door. The dirty secret behind the lie of perfectionism is it makes us into tyrants over ourselves and others. It keeps our bags packed and anxious in the house of our Father, our spiritual house. The next scripture says, When you were dead in your sins 
and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. What is condemnation? Condemnation is every accusation that runs through your mind that tells you that you are not good enough, that you are not what you should be. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. I want you guys to underline nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat, drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So here's the problem. Perfectionism over here is the judge in our life. It keeps us trying to live up to a standard. And grace over here sees us running on this hamster wheel of trying so hard, and it stops the wheel. Grace fills up the places we can't go on our own. It becomes the adequacy to fill our inadequacy. It sees our need and our sin, and it paid for it with the cross. And grace makes us daughters. And this is what we hear a lot in church, but it is the point of why we're here tonight. It's the point of why we're here every night. It's the point of why Jesus came. And if we miss this, we miss the whole thing. We no longer judge ourselves by our acceptability and what we're able to do because Christ is the only one who makes us acceptable. The one who judges is Jesus, and he says, you're in if you're mine. And we are all on the same level of beggars at the table of grace. It all comes back to the cross. and all begins and ends because the cross is the death of perfectionism and the birth of freedom. So on your sheet, you have two boxes. And I want to go back to that first night where we talked about the orphan mindset. So go ahead and write orphan and daughter. Under orphan, you can write an equal sign and what you do. Because all of the orphan's worth is based in what she does. All of it. And the daughter write who you are. Because the daughter's security is in who she is and who she belongs to. And what she does doesn't change who she is. Do you guys remember what um, verse we read? It's on your notes, so you got a cheat sheet. But it says, First um, John four eighteen through nineteen. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. There's no fear in love, guys, because fear has to do with punishment. The perfectionist is constantly afraid of what's coming next when they make a mistake. Whether that's in relationships, whether that's in work, whether that's in just being who they are and trying to be a better them, the fear of not being good enough is that that not being good enough is going to take something from them 
whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job or a promotion or whatever, and their constant anxiety and fear is circular and never-ending. So we stop it by not putting our security in what we do. We stop it by putting our security in who we are. And there has to come a point in your life where the cross isn't just a thing that happened at one point when you gave your life to Jesus. It's a thing that happens to you every day. And that's where your security lies. We love because he first loved us. We love because he loves us, and that's all we need. And that's where my security lies. Whether I fail or not, guys, whether I am the kind of leader who makes her friends walk through 100-degree heat on a Tennessee afternoon, whether I am the kind of leader that loves well and serves Jesus with my whole heart, whether I am an excellent artist, whether I am not, whether my friends are happy with me, whether they are not, whether my boss is happy with me, no matter what. Who I am is way more important than what I do. And if what I do is a problem, who I am and who he is is going to carry me through what I'm doing. And that is the key, and that's what has changed my mindset, you guys, because God put me through several years, and I mean years, probably decades, of teaching me by putting people in my path and in my life and in my family who spoke negativity over me so that I never felt like what I was doing was enough. So that I had to cling to the cross and I had to say, I'm following him and that's enough. And that's what taught me and broke me of my need to perform and find my identity in it. So now it's a five-minute run through in my head instead of an all-day, all-week debilitating thing. Does that make sense? Okay. The first night we wrote because up here. And that because is the cross. So guys, this is our last teaching night. Um, and I want to just talk again about the cross because again, it is the point and it is the point for us whether we've been Christ followers for 25 years or one month or not at all. The cross is the open door into a family and a home. For the exhausted perfectionist, it is the surrender of trying so hard. And you guys, we do have to surrender. If we're perfectionists, we have to come to a point where we're like, this is not working for me, yo. I am not going to be this anymore. And be okay with the fact that we are not perfect. For the lost, the cross is being found. For the ignored, it's to be seen. For every sin, it's the record wiped clean. The past laid to rest. The cross is rest for us. We don't have to try anymore. We can just receive. But you can't have it both ways. Either the cross or the perfectionism will rule your life. And you're on a journey with one or the other. If you're a perfectionist and the striving is ruling your life, it's a good moment tonight to take a step back and look at that and say, what is controlling my behavior right now? If you know Jesus, it's a good time to process that and say, God, is this a place I need to come to with you? So I'm going to invite 
Hannah and, no, Taylor. Looked at you and said Hannah, sorry, girl. Um, Taylor and Lindsay up. And we're going to sing a couple songs, and I want you guys to use them to process. And then there's questions on your sheet, and there are three questions. Um, and feel free to answer any, all, or none. But I want you guys as a table to really talk through this stuff tonight and then to pray together. And I'll come back up at 9 to wrap us up. I'd like to invite y'all to stand and uh, worship with us. Um, and